0: What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my long-awaited sit-down with the godfather of unscripted packaging, Mark Itkin, the former partner at WME, the head of Unscripted at William Morris before that. Mark Itkin is a legend in the business, and when I set out to do this podcast, I told myself a long time ago, this was going to be one of the must-have interviews, and it did not disappoint. Mark was very open about... What was going on with him personally at the time of the famous William Morris and Endeavor merger? He also talked about the stories behind some of the biggest projects in the business that he played a part in packaging. And Mark was a little cagey at the end of the interview talking about what's next for him. And shortly after we recorded, it was released that Mark Itkin would join TV4 Entertainment in an advisory role. They manage more than 30 streaming channels. So this is far from the end for Mark Itkin. This is his sit down with me. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so I did a little diligence leading up to this. I talked to some people that know you best. Before you were a Hall of Fame agent, Mark Icken. is it true that you were a game show contestant?
1: I was. <laughs>
0: what, twice? I was.
1: I heard once. You just once. Once. Yeah, once officially, and then I tried out with my family for Family Feud, and we didn't get on. Really? We didn't get on.
0: How old were you for the Family Feud?
1: Uh... I was in my twenties. I was I was back here practicing law. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. After law
0: school, uh, my family was actually on the feud.
1: Were you on it?
0: No, not me. This is I was in my mom's belly, and Richard Dawson actually made a reference to the, my mom was showing, and she was pregnant, and Richard Dawson actually commented on the baby.
1: Have uh, you seen the show?
0: Oh yeah, we had it on VHS growing up. It, you, it's you it's gotta amazing. Send, send
1: me a copy of it's the show. A, it's amazing to I watch. To see it. My
0: my dad, my mom, two of my uncles, and another aunt were on.
1: And what year was it? Do you remember? Well, of course well, you remember. it would have been. It would have been eighty okay. one. Okay. Richard Dawson. When it was flying high, still
0: got extra kisses from all the women in the family. Of Great. course. Wait, what was the other show you were on?
1: I was on Ten Thousand Dollar Pyramid.
0: No way.
1: I went to New York. It was my favorite game show, and I used to watch it all through college. And when I graduated UCLA, and before I started. Berkeley Law School, I went to New York to spend uh, some time with friends of mine, and I tried out and I got on.
0: Okay, so this is what I love about this. I think that oftentimes, the further you go into this business, and you rise, maybe accumulate some wealth, I think what people tend to forget is, at the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of TV nerds trying to act cooler than we really are, right?
1: A complete... And particularly a daytime TV nerd, it doesn't get more nerdy than that.
0: So tell me the whole history here, because oftentimes for people like us, there's usually one show or one movie that initially sparks some sort of interest in the business. Do you have like an earliest memory of what that show was for you?
1: Well, it, it wasn't exactly a television show. OK, I'll tell you what it was. So I grew up out in the San Fernando Valley. Where? Uh, in Canoga Park. My grandparents own an apartment building on Sheramoya off of Franklin in Hollywood. And my grandpa, when I was six years old, used to take me down to Hollywood Boulevard and we would just walk around and we'd have lunch and we'd go see the, the, uh, the, uh, footprints at the Grauman's Chinese and we'd go shopping and stuff. And that was like a highlight for me every vacation. So I just kind of fell in love with, with Hollywood. But here's the other interesting part. My my other grandma okay. was a game show fanatic, and she lived on El Centro, right off of Vine Street.
0: Right, right, right in the heart of Hollywood.
1: Right in the heart of Hollywood, and she took me in 1965 to see a taping of the Dating Game because the studio, which is now. Uh, uh, I think it's 1717 North Vine. It's now AFI or something like that. Used to be ABC Studios. And they taped the dating game there. So in the very first year of the dating game, she took me there. She took me also to ABC Prospect to see a game show called Split Second. And I fucking loved <laughs> sitting in the audience with my grandma. Amazing! And she got me hooked on game shows.
0: So was this a, a reoccurring thing that she would often take you to live tapings?
1: All the time. We even got on a bus. I mean, I'm going to show you how old I am. On the corner of Sunset and Vine there's a used to be a Home Savings and Loan. I don't know, it's now a Chase Bank or something. Okay. That used to be NBC's radio studio. Wow. And they would and you could get on a bus. And that's and, how
0: all those old game shows started. They were originally radio, radio formats. Shows.
1: And you could get on a bus and go to NBC Burbank. So my grandma would go, get tickets, we'd get on the bus at Sunset and Vine we go to NBC Burbank, and we saw a show called People Are Talking. Okay. And it was in the Johnny Carson studio, but he wasn't there yet. It right. was that big rake studio where Jay Leno came from. Sure, of course.
0: There's something really magical about know. that Burbank lot. Because that's – when I was on Ben's desk, when he, when he first started NBC, we were still on that lot. Exactly. And then I was part of that class that moved over to the Universal lot. But being on that lot, knowing it was the home of Carson and Leno, then not Leno, then Leno later – but that whole lot, now it's, you know, you go there now, it's crazy. It's like iHeartRadio.
1: Is that what it is? It's
0: iHeartRadio, and I still think Days of Our Lives. Okay. Right? I still think they probably, shoot
1: there. Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah, funny yeah,
0: that, yeah. It, so it was your grandma that really got you invested in game shows.
1: My grandma, Bell.
0: And what did your parents do?
1: My dad was an engineer. Uh, I worked in aerospace. Okay. and My mom was a housewife.
0: Canoga Parks. What high school did you go to?
1: I went to Taft High School in Woodland Hills. Okay. Uh, sure, Cause my, my parents got a special permit for me to go because it was the better schools, better than Canoga park high school. Sorry for those of you that are listening <laughs> that went to Canoga park high school, but, um,
0: I think ice cube is a former alumni of Taft. I believe
1: he is. And Jillian, um, uh, uh, uh and then uh, some, some, some important athletes, uh, a couple of baseball players, people like that. Um, it was a good school. So you're a
0: Southern California guy.
1: The only time, only other you time never,
0: I, You never left California. I mean... Never left
1: California. You no. went to
0: UCLA. Right. And then you got, what, a law degree from Berkeley? Yeah, I went to Boulder. What was Berkeley like at that time? What What era of Berkeley is this?
1: Well, I was post-Vietnam War, so it was yeah. kind of quiet. Okay. But it was still Berkeley, you know? Right. I mean, it was cool and... You know, you could do anything you want and uh, it was – and my parents wouldn't let me – I wanted to go to Berkeley for undergrad, but they wouldn't let me go because it was during the war years. Okay. So when the war was over and I got accepted to law school, I couldn't turn it down. And listen to San Francisco two miles away across the bridge. I mean you know, it's a fantasy.
0: What time in your life then did it hit you that working in TV and actually playing a part in maybe game shows – after having a childhood passion, when did that hit you that I don't have to go pursue law or I'm going to make this transition? Did you start at a law firm out of school?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, well, see, my two loves really in life were always television and music. And I was a DJ all through UCLA. Get out. No, no. I was, I, I was a DJ at KLA.
0: What was – Wait, what, did you have a, a call name?
1: N- no, just my name. Okay. But I had the I had key drive time, three to six, for a long time. And it was the '70s, so I mean, it was classic rock and roll, classic R&B, so
0: Eagles, and
1: Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, yeah, Bruce Springsteen in his early days. Sure. I mean, it was it was great. So, man, when I was in when when I graduated law, well, when I was in law school and I could clerk, yeah, I really kind of wanted to do music. I hadn't really thought about because I didn't I didn't think I really knew that there was a big Law business and TV or film, but I knew there wasn't music. Okay, so I went and I, I worked for a music. I worked for Mitchell Silverberg. That had a, one of the best music practices,
0: and they I, were based in Beverly Hills, in
1: Century City at the time. Okay, and I worked there for almost two years.
0: Did you go straight from there to Moore? So did you have some no, other stops along the no, way?
1: I had one. I had a. So I, I really didn't like being a lawyer. Okay, because. I, you know, as a young lawyer, you sit in an office and you draft agreements and you, you know, you don't even get the fun stuff, but I didn't like it. And it wasn't the best use of, of my talents. and It wasn't creative. And so I quit. Okay. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I moved back up to San Francisco for 10 months. San Francisco is a great place to go when you don't know what you want to do. So you would
0: even go back home with your parents who are right down here in Southern Cal. You're like, I'm going to go back up to the bay.
1: I moved up to San Francisco. And figured things out. And figured things out. And after 10 months.
0: (laughs) Did you you figure things out totally sober?
1: Totally sober. (laughs) Totally sober. I worked as a bartender and as a gym instructor. Wow. And I figured it out. And really after eight months, I was so bored because it wasn't using my brain Mm -hmm. that I said, I got to go back and I got to get back in the business, but I don't want to be a lawyer.
0: So how did you get to Morris? Okay.
1: So when I was in at UCLA, I used to bartend for a man who was a manager in the business named Lee Mims. He managed a lot of professional ice skaters like Peggy Fleming and um, uh, Ty and Randy, people who uh, but he also had some some actors. But the ice skating world was his specialty. I called him the summer of 1981 and told him, I said, I got to do something. I don't know what And he says. I think you'd be a great agent. I'm going to introduce you to um, some friends of mine at the William Morris agency. But there's another great part of the story. Okay. One of my fraternity brothers at UCLA was Mark Graboff. No way. And Mark Graboff was in the very first mailroom at CAA. That's right. Before he left to become a lawyer. And Mark Graboff says, "Why don't you come here and inter- if you're going to go interview at, w- at WMA, come interview at CAA." Got it. So I go and I interview at CAA. Mark,
0: first. Mark Graboff, by the way, former co-chairman of NBC, now With ben. now running Discovery Studios, and one of the nicest guys you will ever meet. One in the of the
1: truly nicest gentlemen, and a, and a, and a, and friends, and a great fraternity brother. <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, I mean, he, he set you up. You're looking he, for a gig yes, right yes, out of school. He's yes. like, come, come to CA and interview. Yes, yes, yes. So even at that time, you were immediately exposed to the agency wars of interviewing with one place and another. Yes. Okay.
1: So I go to CA and I, and I interview with a guy named Ray Kurtzman. And he says in the course of the interview, he says, well... I just can't believe a guy who's been practicing law in this town and making, you know, a lot of money, which, by the way, I wasn't making a lot of money, (laughs) would want to start over in the mailroom. I said, well, uh, but that's why I'm here. He didn't hire me.
0: Wow. Did not hire me. You were overqualified.
1: Or he didn't believe me. Interesting. I was looking for a gig, you know, or something. So I go and I'm.
0: Wait, 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 Mark, the the ripple effect. I mean, I mean, the sliding sliding doors, doors. the sliding doors, (laughs) Hollywood ripple effect of changing the the fabric of major agencies with that one decision by, by Mr. Kurtzman, by
1: Mr. Kurtzman.
0: Incredible.
1: So I go and I interview on New Year's Eve at the William Morris agency Eighty-two. then this was now 81. 81, was December 31st, 1981.
0: Okay. So the end of this year. Okay. End of
1: the year. In those days, people worked during Christmas, <laughs> and I interviewed with Jerry Katzman, who was the head of the television department, and Jerry Katzman was a lawyer. He'd been a business affairs lawyer at William Morris before he became an agent, completely understood me right? and hired me, and, and in January 82, I started in the Miller Morris. I mean,
0: Morris. And at this time, William Morris is the most famous agency in the world. Absolutely. In fact, they're the only name agency in entertainment that – people in middle America had ever heard of.
1: Absolutely. And, and bigger than CAA at the time. Because remember, this yeah. is 1982. The whole CAA still, takeover hadn't really happened Right. Yet. CAA
0: is still like a startup at, exactly. at, at that point. I mean, William Morris is a storied agency Absolutely, at this
1: point. Absolutely.
0: Incredible. And you started in the mailroom?
1: Started in the mailroom.
0: How long were we in the mailroom? Six weeks. Six weeks? weeks. Yes. Do you know how many people that may or may not listen to this podcast are beating their heads up against a wall right now that they are going to be put in the mailroom for a year, two years, then get on a desk, suffer on a desk for two more years and maybe get promoted. Right. That's kind of right. Is that like accurate?
1: That's that's accurate. Even back then. Yeah. You know, was if, it like it back then? Was back that then? It wasn't as long as I think it is today because right. there are there a lot of people wanted to do it, but there weren't as many. I think then,
0: more competition today, yeah.
1: But it, there still weren't a lot of people, I think, who had the, the background that I had. Right.
0: And so... Um, six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. And then were you made a floater once you got bumped out of the room right on a desk?
1: No, on a desk. They didn't even have, they didn't have things called floaters then, Right. So... You went on a desk. Was it the
0: music department?
1: No. It was, uh, it was what was called the variety department. Oh, and the variety department was basically the non-scripted department. Oh,
0: so you are just a pig and shit at this point.
1: I'm a pig and shit.
0: I mean, this is like the guys are doing the variety shows and the game shows. This is everything you want. Talk
1: wanted. shows, sports. Yes.
0: You're going crazy at this point.
1: Yeah. and, and,
0: and, and, and it, to, but those, Do you remember those early days, though? Like, before you became seasoned, when you're just new in the building and you get to listen to every phone call, every right. one of those phone calls was like a mini lesson
1: incredible. And I think Jerry Katzman who really was an amazing mentor. Hmm. Said I was on his desk one day and a woman an executive named Barbara Corday. She was at Columbia at the time and scripted called. And when and when the phone call was over, I asked him the question. I said, "Jerry, is she related to the Ken Corday who is the exec producer of Days of Our Lives?" Right. He said, "No, but that's an amazing question. Nobody's ever asked me that."
0: Right. Right,
1: But nobody knew about daytime. Nobody cared about daytime. You were already
0: a student of the game a little bit. So you're a guy with legal background and a healthy interest for the business. And a healthy
1: interest, yeah.
0: How long did it take until they promoted you?
1: It was October 83. So I was on a desk from uh, January 82 to October 83, a year and a half. Year and a half. Yeah.
0: All right. So that would start the rise and the legend of market kit. I'm just going to go, <laughs> I'm just going to go through some of the highlights here and I'm going to miss a lot. Cause you know, the thing about agents that's interesting is there's no IMDB, there's no credits, right? So if you got to really dig to, you got to ask around to find out what packages and what projects were they really behind? Uh, and I'm going to miss a lot of notable ones, but this is what I was able to find on my own. People's court, American gladiators, fear factor project runway big brother deal or no deal extreme makeover home edition uh hell's kitchen uh, the real world now i'm sure there's many many others in there i know you also did scripted projects you were one of the pioneers of the, the the 1090 model can you explain for like people listening that maybe don't know the 1090 model the early days of syndication and that first run syndication model you helped build that or is that an overstatement because people give you the credit for... I mean, the 1090 for...
1: model is really something more recent. That, okay. that, is, uh, that came about with the Tyler Perry sitcoms.
0: Right. But you were behind that.
1: No, I was behind... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, me and Ira Bernstein and Mort and Marcus.
0: Yeah. yeah. At Deadmar Mercury?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So explain to the listener what, what the 1090 is. What does that mean exactly?
1: Well, let me tell you how it came about because then it yeah. will make a little more sense. So Tyler Perry was a client of of William Morris And he had written a script um, for CBS, and they started to give him the typical notes. And he says, I can't write what they want me to write. He says, that's not my voice. And he basically walked away from the deal at CBS. Mm -hmm. And and Charles King, who was his main agent at William Morris, sent him to see me. And he said –
0: what else can I do? Because you knew syndication, is that why he said well, it he didn't
1: he just he, Charles just thought maybe I could come up with another way to do it. Because okay. I, I never did anything traditionally. I, I wasn't in the t- traditional television primetime business, right wasn't cable and syndication, and so he comes to see me and he says, "How do I do it where I can be in control?" And I said, "Well, okay. It hasn't – this is now 2005,
0: five, six. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I said – Crazy to think this is like 11 years ago. Yeah,
1: no. It's not very long ago. Yeah. I said there at one time was a very, very successful first-run syndicated scripted business, both in hours and half hours. Small Wonder, yep. Charles in Charge, That's all right. those shows were first-run. I said nobody's doing it anymore. But Who's to say why it couldn't happen again? It was Tyler Perry – it was urban, and there was nothing like that out there. So mm. I, the first people I called were Mort and Ira because I respect them. They think out of the box. I trust them. I think they're, they're just terrific business guys. And had
0: you done many syndication, unscripted shows with them in the past? I
1: had done things with them in, in their other capacities. I don't think I had done anything with them. De- Demar Morris, relatively new, they had only done – um, like South Park reruns and stuff like that. It was okay. a relatively new company. And I called them and I told them who's Tyler Perry. <laughs> so I set up a meeting huh. for and I introduced him to Tyler Perry and we t- and we talked about what he wanted to do and it was The House of Pain was the was the sitcom. And we thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going to test it. We're going Tyler Perry was going to fund it himself out of his studio in Atlanta. We'll shoot 10 episodes and we'll give those episodes basically for free to the station. The, strategically, the best stations in the best markets in the best time periods, which is the artist syndication. That's what we did.
0: Now, where did Denmark come into play? Were they just the connector to all they those were local the distributor. stations? They were, they the, were the, the distributor. distributor okay? So they would make all the connection, but Tyler fully financed.
1: The pilots, the ten, the ten episodes, the ten episodes, yeah, 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 okay. One of the stations that it was cleared on was in Atlanta. It was the Peachtree station owned by Turner. Okay, and um, huh, and um, and the sh- and, and and so the test goes on, and it's getting the show's getting like a seven rating <laughs> in Atlanta. It did well everywhere, right. but in Atlanta, seven. So the head of t- Turner TBS comes to us. And says, "Guys, I I want to put this on TBS. Don't go in the first run syndication. And let me put it on cable." And we devised this model and said, "Okay, you got to order 100 episodes, <laughs> 10 of the test and 90 more."
0: Now, just okay. Why 90 more? Was it just a nice round number?
1: Yeah, 100 episodes was enough to get us in the first run syndication. Got it. Reruns. Yes. If it didn't work out.
0: Got it. So you could retain all of the syndication rights. Absolutely. TBS just got that first run. Right. They fully financed?
1: They paid a license They paid fee. a they, license. They didn't, they didn't fully finance, but they paid a lot of money.
0: Paid a lot of money right. covering a majority of the budget. Correct. Tyler, denmar and, and they had An a window. They had a exclusive
1: window. And after a year, um, we were able to take it out into syndication, which is exactly what we did. And so the local market's all over again. And it goes on the air and it and brings now a huge urban – African American odds that TBS didn't have, and they just keep ordering episodes and keep ordering episodes, and then came Meet the Browns. So right. then we had the companion show,
0: and then FX duplicated the model with Anger Management with Charlie Sheen. A couple and of years later, there was also um, there was another one in there. The oh, one the, that Joe the, Roth did.
1: Um, there was a uh, Frasier. But even but right after Mar- Martin
0: Lawrence and, uh,
1: but right Kelsey after Kelsey Grammer, the, but right after correct, but yeah. right after the Tyler Perry ones, Joe Roth did. Are we are we there yet? Yeah,
0: are we there yet? Yeah,
1: that was the that was the third that was the next ones that came. Right. That Demar did. That wasn't with Tyler, but. Um,
0: All right. Yeah. So I want I want to go through the quick because there's so much to cover and I can't do justice. Can to... Can I ev- tell
1: you what the first one was, though, Jimmy? Which what? The very first package I ever saw. Yes, please. Because it's a cool story. Please. Nineteen eighty four.
0: Nineteen eighty four. And the Olympics. And Reagan the is
1: the president. Olympics in L.A. But in nineteen eighty three, the Beach Boys. Had petitioned the Secretary of Interior, his name was James Watt, to do a July Fourth celebration on the, at the Washington Monument on the Fourth of July. Oh my God! The Beach Boys were going to, and they're going to bring all these celebrities and do it. And James Watt said no. In 1984, the Beach Boys through and Jerry Weintraub and whatever through the management got it through, so it became July Fourth. The Fuck You, James Watt concert. <laughs> it was called DC Beach Party, and I packaged it and sold it to Showtime.
0: Oh my god! And is this is this a pre or post cocktail and Kokomo? Pre, pre, pre. But the Beach Boys are the F and Beach Boys. Yeah, amazing for Showtime. For Showtime. So there you are, young agent, and you're hanging with the Beach Boys. Sitting at, at the concert. Lincoln
1: Monument on July Fourth, watching the fireworks and saying, "Man, I this is a I, this is the." I did the right thing.
0: And you were a music guy. So and I kinda, was a music guy. It came and full I was circle selling
1: show. Was like, Former
0: college DJ, yeah, now packaging yeah, up a Beach Boys yeah, it special. As as it gets. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm fascinated by the People's Court. I'm fascinated by how that came together. Was Wapner on board from the beginning? And was he part of the brain trust when that was sold? Or did Judge Wapner come in after a format was sold?
1: It came in after the, f- the format was created and sold. Really? He was
0: cast. He was cast. Yeah. So it was literally just, we're going to stage a courtroom and people are really going to settle their stuff on camera. Correct. That's how it was sold. Correct. And then Doug Llewellyn and Wapner were just casting.
1: Right. It was Ralph Edwards, Stu Billet, and, and uh, but and created by another gentleman, and, and forgive me for... And, um, not remembering his name. Um, he was represented by Arnold Sank, and I cannot remember the man's name who created it. Um,
0: but that was syndication as well.
1: That was for t- – put telepictures on the map.
0: Right. And and were you in the room for every one of those first meetings? No.
1: No. No. <laughs> I was really responsible for bringing it back the, the next time with um in the 2000s
0: right or was that no it was in the 90s 90s. yeah
1: ed Koch had just been mayor of new york and he was the first judge on it it didn't work out too well
0: anyway american gladiators yeah i heard this is like uh one of your one of your babies like i heard this is one of your favorite packages that you put together I, I I was a huge fan of it because as a kid it combined two of my favorite things which was sports and like the WWF you know characters uh mentality and the presentation was this a format was it an international format No 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 not at all This was an original idea
1: It wasn't even when it was brought to me it wasn't even an idea There was a guy named um uh Johnny um God forgive me. To, uh, like an Italian I know or something. So well, he and his family owned the Gold's Gym in Youngstown, Ohio. Okay. And he came, somehow got to me, and he, had, he he. came to my office, and he set up on my desk this um, like um, a cardboard with two guys arm wrestling, and it said "American Gladiators." And I said, "That is an amazing name. <laughs> Even I have no idea what it is."
0: It's all about the title sometimes. Start with the marketing. Sometimes start with with the title and the billboard. Tell me what the billboard is and let's figure out the format later. But if you don't have the billboard, you're done.
1: So he, I introduced him to Ron Ziskin, who was my client at a company called Four Point Entertainment. Got it. And they created American Gladiators. It was not a format. And now comes the best part of the story. It took almost six years to sell it.
0: Six years to sell
1: it. It was to me, the moment I saw it, the clearest thing. And yet sometimes the simplest idea, but radically new, is very difficult to sell. Right. And it taught me a very good lesson as a young agent. If you really are passionate believe in something, do not give up on it.
0: And it couldn't have been a cheap show to make at the time. It was cheap to make. Was it? Yeah,
1: yeah. It was It was not expensive. Because they shot
0: a lot of episodes and overlapped in a, yeah, in a day. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and you, you know, the, the, the game, I mean, it was low tech.
0: But, it will, but think about it. it. You had, at that time, game shows. But reality TV wasn't born yet, right? You had on,
1: but you had things like you had WWE or WWF. You had, time, you, had, you, had that. you had roller derby.
0: You had roller games. Roller I, I love watching roller games. It came right. on after WWE uh, on the weekends, and then you also had, I guess, uh, Battle of the Network Stars. Yeah, which you
1: had, but which is coming back. Which is coming back. And you had Glow.
0: You had gl- Gorgeous Ladies of yeah, Wrestling, yeah. which, by the way, kicking myself that I didn't think to buy those rights to go to a scripted series that Netflix is now doing, because I did grow up watching that. But if you think about it, I mean, there was never a competition show, a pure competition show done in this way. With real people. With real people for the purposes of civilian competition. Everything else we named, they were characters... By like some sort of you know entertainment corporation like WWE or Glow or Roller Games.
1: Correct. That was the that was the hook to the show because you could watch that show and say I could be on there, I could do that.
0: Were you in, were you involved in any of or get exposed to the early castings of where they found the gladiators in the first place? Well, I
1: was around when they cast the original the original cast.
0: Um, I mean, were all these people like former professional athletes yeah. and just bodybuilders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and they yeah. probably uh, the casting. Dan that,
1: who was um, Nitro. N- Nitro was a football player
0: project runway so i don't need to get into the creation of the show the thing that really fascinates fascinates me on a business level is that you were at the center of project runway departing bravo No, oh,
1: yeah <laughs> i had testified i had to testify well, in the I, lawsuit
0: refresh me though i don't remember was it over just the rights of it all and bravo wasn't going to bring it back for whatever reasons and Weinstein said, "Fine, we'll go sell it elsewhere." And Bravo didn't think they had the right to do it. it was as simple as no, that? No,
1: Bravo wanted to keep it.
0: Harvey um, wanted to pull it.
1: Harvey wanted to pull it. Why? K- wasn't getting what he felt was the best deal with a Hitch television show.
0: I could and, see why there know, would be a lawsuit then, because yeah. that doesn't happen, right? How many times has a producer just yanked a show from a network that wants to renew it's it? Harvey
1: Weinstein. Can you, <laughs> but
0: can you think of another example? No.
1: no. Pro- Shows have moved to different networks and stuff, but never when. Hey, I'm not getting a good enough deal, and I'm going to move it.
0: Right? How did that settle?
1: Uh, there, uh, they had the Weinstein's had to pay something. They didn't win the lawsuit.
0: Any networks didn't get in- entrenched in that. They didn't have to owe Bravo something.
1: Well, I don't know what the exact terms were, and probably they're 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 right uh, confidential, confidential anyway. But the one thing that happened in all of that is that the magical, that, that NBC was very smart and they put the elves under an exclusive deal so that the elves couldn't follow the show to the new home. And that's how Buena Murray became the production company for the new show.
0: So magical elves who did the Bravo series.
1: Did, they're, they're, they're part of the creation of, the, or the development of the right. original show. They, they could, did a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. Phenomenal job.
0: They couldn't travel with the show no. to Lifetime. So no. all the spinoffs that came later on Lifetime, as they kind of grew it out, they were never party to any of that. No, only the Weinsteins could continue on with it.
1: And Desiree Gruber and Jane Shaw, who actually sure. created the original idea,
0: yeah. You got a great Harvey story to share involved in Project Runway. Any good Harvey anecdotes? I worked, oh, I worked sure. with him, you know, in Glasser on Mob Wives and on Marco Polo. So okay. I, I've had my own share of Harvey stories. And there is no, I mean, honestly, that guy. I was going to ask you this later, but. Would you say he's one of the top three pitchers in the room? Absolutely, in the history of the business. I don't have,
1: and, and not just because we're, we're broadcasting this, yeah. or cablecasting it, or, digital, <laughs> or whatever, digitally, whatever podcasting it. it. I don't have a bad thing to say about Harvey. Weinstein. My experience at Harvey Weinstein was was only good. Right. He treated me with respect. He asked me to do what I, to do what I had to do as an agent. I right. made things happen. Never had a problem with him.
0: One of the most charismatic people. Absolutely creative, risk-taking, but that's the thing that I like great people, gut
1: feeling about, you know. What
0: gets lost with Harvey uh, in all the stories that are told about him, as histrionic as he may be in certain cases and bombastic and stories that are told about him maybe being pushy, whatever, As a, as a businessman, he actually completely backs it up. With a creative sen- sensibility Absolutely. that is really unmatched. The guy has impeccable taste.
1: He has, I was just gonna say that, Jimmy. He has impeccable taste. And we
0: know a lot of producers that are great salesmen or are very pushy, but have, you know, can't produce themselves out of a brown bag.
1: He has, that's, you, you said it again, he has impeccable taste.
0: Okay, I wanna get into the story of Buna Murray. I'm okay. told that you put together Mary Alice and John. Correct. This is true. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. So were, were they right. both two separate William Morris clients?
1: No, no, not at all. Um, Mary Ellis had been a very successful daytime soap opera producer. She'd worked for Procter and Gamble, did Secret Storm, Search for Tomorrow. She had fin- she had just finished doing a soap called Santa Barbara. Sure. For New World, mm-hmm. run by John Feltheimer. Show goes off there they make Mary Ellis Bunam a development exec in non-scripted television.
0: Okay.
1: So when I had things to sell, I'd go take them to Mary Ellis Bunim and she and I really connected. She's very bright. She just got it. Mm-hmm. One day I get a call from a good friend of mine in the syndication business named Rich Colbert. He, he was the distributor of tic-tac-toe and Joker's wild and things like that. And he says, I have this friend who's a station rep in New York who has ideas for television shows. He doesn't want to be a rep anymore. Would you be willing to talk to him? And one of the things I always learned is you know, if somebody that you respect says, I want you to talk to somebody, you, 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 you do it. Take the meeting. So I, so I get on the phone with John Murray, and John Murray tells me about some of his ideas. I said, you know what? These are, th- these are really good ideas. Why don't you come out here? Because I'm going to inter- I'm gonna have to package you. I'm going to have to introduce you to producers because you're not going to be able to sell it on your own. Comes out and sleeps on my couch in Manhattan Beach. Come on. Sleeps on my couch <laughs> in Manhattan Beach. And the first person I introduce him to... Wait, hold on. Was this
0: common know. for you? No. What he was didn't have it, any wh- money. What was it about John that you he brought him into your any home? Money.
1: He did He He just...
0: But you just took to the guy immediately.
1: Yeah, and he came through Rich Colbert, who was a okay. good buddy of mine. So I trusted him, you know? Okay. You're doing a solid. Yeah, I did a solid. And so he's... he's Comes to LA, and the first person I introduce him to is a woman named Jackie Smith. Jackie Smith was the legendary head of daytime at ABC who, who totally reinvented ABC's daytime soap opera schedule. Remember the marriage of Luke and Laura and General oh, Hospital? Huge. That's Jackie Smith. Okay. Okay. She retires. She sets up an independent production company. The ideas that John had were were a little bit soapy ideas. And I thought, Jackie Smith, that, she's got all this respect in the business. So I introduced him to Jackie Smith. And Jackie Smith decides she really likes John. She likes ideas. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm retired now. I don't really want to do much. Mm. So I think, okay, who else do I know? Ah, Mary Ellis Bunham. So I introduced the two of them. And they hit it off. And they create a show called Crime Diaries. Which was like a daytime soap crime show, I sell it to Mort Marcus, who was at a company called Quintex. OK And it go, they take it out in the first run, but it doesn't sell. OK? Then one day, Lauren Correo at MTV gives me a phone call and she says, "You know what? We're going to do a soap opera. We're going to do a scripted soap opera at MTV." Do you have anyone who knows how to put soap operas together? I said, wow. yeah, Mary Ellis might Now she's no longer in New World. She's my client. She goes in and she has a meeting. They make a deal with her and, and, and John. And she says to me, she calls me, she says, I'm going to tell you, Mark, in six months they're going to bail because <laughs> they don't realize how expensive
0: a real soap opera. soap operas. opera. And this right. is
1: MTV in the early. Late, 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, early
0: stages. Yeah, early yeah.
1: stages. They hadn't even bought from an outside production company Right. Yet. They're just
0: doing the in-house studio shows All and, in-house. and music video countdown shows.
1: Exactly. And so, sure enough, six months later, five months later, whatever it was, they bailed. But what I didn't know was that in the meantime, what Mary Ellis and John were doing was they were developing a real-life soap opera. They were influenced by the Loud family, the American family, the PBS series from the 70s. And so they had developed basically the real world. And we pitched it, and they ordered a pilot, which was shot in New York. The first one was done in New York, and it was brilliant.
0: I didn't realize that a pilot. Oh, was yeah. the first was step pilot. to that. So they did they do that with the original cast? No,
1: it was it didn't, totally okay. had to recast. D- got it. The, the 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 original series in New York was a completely new cast, but the pilot was so good.
0: Did they walk in with the title? Or was yes. that they did?
1: Yes, yes. Wow.
0: Yes. Yeah. And do you remember getting the call when they yes. were ready to go to series? Doug
1: Herzog, Lauren Correo, uh Joe DiVola. Yeah.
0: Was that one of those ones you felt it in your gut immediately that it was going to put MTV on the map or no. or change anything?
1: No, it was it, no. I don't think anybody thought that, but it was. I, I I applauded MTV for taking the risk. Yeah, because not a lot of people take risks, but MTV was a risk taking network, obviously, and all those executives were smart guys. And Marielson and John knew they had something good, but nobody knew whether it was going to work or not.
0: And did you represent? Buna Murray forever. After that,
1: I represented Buna Murray until they were bought by Banijay.
0: That was 2010, then, I think. And then
1: Banaget didn't want them to have agents at the time, and so um, I no longer represented them. Got it. But it was a great run. We did. I mean, we did Simple Life. We did a lot of groundbreaking, wonderful shows. Road Rules.
0: Road Rules. And now, pretty much, Buna Murray does everything on the E Network. We actually seems-
1: Kardashians. That was we did that with Ryan Seacrest when when uh, William Morris and um, yeah
0: yeah going back to just that gut feeling as an agent were there any projects that turned out to be hits or did well or even sold that when it first came in you in the back of your mind was like this thing this thing i don't i don't really believe in it i don't really get it but i'll, I'll i'm going to back my clients and we're going to do our best to sell it was there anything that surprised you by its success or did you always have a pretty good barometer
1: Truly, I think I always had a pretty good bra. Okay? <laughs> okay. I wouldn't ever have taken out something that I didn't believe in that I thought was a piece of shit or a stupid idea. i give it to somebody else to take out because right. I, 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 I always said to, to all my team, I said, you want to always go into that buyer – you want to keep a reputation with that buyer so that they know that if you're coming in and you're going to have something good or special, they may not buy it, but you're not wasting their time.
0: Isn't that the philosophy that every producer should have?
1: Absolutely. And every agent, any packaging agent should have. Right. Don't waste the buyer's time.
0: Because they remember.
1: And, and later, I mean, you can use that credibility later on. You have to use it, you know? Yeah. And it comes in handy later on. So, so
0: there was never anything that there,
1: I will tell you, that you that,
0: underestimated.
1: Oh, definitely. Many that I underestimated. Ricky okay. Lake. Oh wow! Totally, uh, never expected. I mean, it was a great idea. Garth Sear had the idea to go to counter program Phil Donahue and Oprah Winfrey with somebody young, right? And when and she was a client, and we cast her. I guess she
0: was like the upstart Gen Xer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. At the time, but she like how we throw out millennials today. Like she was like the Gen Xer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And um, So you
0: didn't see that coming?
1: Not the way it took off.
0: How many seasons did she do? 11. Man? Holy cow. It
1: went on the air, I remember. And you have to remember in the syndication business in 1993, Shows, if you didn't get a four or five rating out of the box, you were gone.
0: Right. Right.
1: She goes on the air, I remember. And she did like a one, nine, a two. And by November sweeps, the word was out. She was getting fives and sixes. And I just thought, wow, this is a gift from heaven. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What was Ricky's background? I don't even know. She's an actress. She was an actress.
1: She had done Hairspray. Hairspray. She'd been on China Beach, the series. She was an out-of-work actress when we did the the series. I
0: didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, All right. April 27th, 2009. Does that date have any significance to you?
1: Is that the merger date?
0: That's the merger date. Yeah. I would love to hear your perspective of when the topic first was raised internally. You know, you are a member of the board. You are one of the top, top guys at William Morris, one of the most storied agencies in the world. When did the first conversation get thrown out and tossed out there even casually that an idea of a merger was on the table?
1: The talks have been going on probably since about – well, the serious talks in 2008, okay. in middle of 2008. The talks had happened with Endeavor at one point, I think maybe 2006, but nothing ever happened, 2008.
0: Well, three years earlier there had been talks There
1: had it. been talks once before, yeah, yeah. There might have even been more that I wasn't even aware of. But the board was finally made aware because it was getting serious. And in, I guess it was... November December of 2008 is when it really began this this looks like it's going to happen.
0: Now now walk me for a simpleton like me who's never been on a board before. Mm-hmm. When you are on the board of William Morris and this is getting brought up and people are having conversations like Jim Wyatt is is running William Morris at the time does not the entire board have to weigh in before yes before but, conversations can progress to a serious level?
1: No. No, the board voted
0: only after a deal's in place
1: after the deal is in place yeah, in to bless April. it to bless it to bless it yeah
0: yeah got it what was the what was the strategy behind it was there just a trade off of departments that could complement each other like william morris had the music department
1: william morris had the non-scripted department
0: had the, well yes and had the non-scripted department All, and Then and endeavor had great talent
1: Right. And they had and a good uh, scripted and a uh,
0: good scripted yes, department as well. Yes. Yes. So it was really, if we married
1: Ooh, we had theater and books and all that Right, a story stuff. theater department yeah, yeah, yeah. and books and, yeah. and
0: everything, live yeah. touring, yes. everything that William Morris was known for, for, yeah. for decades. Yeah. So the thought was we can marry these departments yes. that offset each other in terms of strengths. Yes. That was the reasoning behind it. Yes. Were you on board from the beginning or did you have apprehension?
1: I was on board, and I was always on board, but I was not necessarily on board to go with the merch company
0: okay with with the company in particular with endeavor in particular correct, so you were okay there's with-
1: a there's a story behind that but but i was I felt it was the right thing to do for William Morris at that time, but i not was not necessarily going to be a part of it got it. <laughs> at the vote at the vote i voted for it you did but vote i it. did not say i w- at that moment in time i was not sure i was going to be a part of
0: it you're going to stay so your phone as conversations are happening and people start getting a, a sense that you might have a little apprehension that you will want to continue on with the new company mm-hmm. your phone must be ringing off the hook
1: it was, yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. And I actually went into negotiations with another agency. You did? I did.
0: You can't say publicly? I probably shouldn't. Okay. Um, another big
1: agency. Another big agency. And, and
0: you went as far as negotiations.
1: I was in a negotiation. My lawyer was negotiating a deal.
0: So you were halfway out the door.
1: I was halfway out the door.
0: Can I ask, as you're going through this. You haven't and-
1: asked me Why?
0: Well, I'm getting there. I, okay. I, I, I'm getting there. Okay. I'm going to slowly tease, okay. tease, tease the okay. listener.
1: Okay. How,
0: how many interactions had you had with Ari Emanuel and the Endeavor folks around this time?
1: Two or three times prior to this, the merger conversation. Okay. Once we were all at a nappy in Las Vegas and they invited me to breakfast. And then, and, um, and then there was another time when I had serious talks with them. But I... I listen. I loved. I loved the, the William Morris people. The, uh, they treated me great. They paid me great. Right. I had no reason to leave. You know. Yeah. Maybe I could have made more money owning the owning, being one of the original owners of a company. But you know, it's not always about the money. It's so, about the people you work with and the quality of life and things like that. So you would
0: had conversations with Endeavor before. Yes. They had tried to get you out. Yes. Now it comes to a vote. You vote, but it doesn't mean you want to stay. You're Correct. in negotiations with this other Not in
1: a- ne- um You're having Yes, deep- I was already in I was already in negotiations with this other
0: agency. Correct. Why did you want why were you not comfortable with Endeavor? Let's get there. Why That's you-
1: not what what that wasn't the reason. It wasn't that. Not at all. Not at all. What was the reason? I You have to understand that the two most profitable departments at the William Morris Agency were music and non-scripted. Right. So one day in March of 2009, I get called down to Jim Wyatt and Irv Weintraub's office and they tell me, Mark – and you have to understand uh, uh, that there was really seven people on the board that ran the agency, and I was one of those seven. Okay. Right, and
0: you had been there 20-plus years at this point, like oh, yeah, 26, 27 years.
1: And there was going to be a board of the NUCO, five William Morris agents – and four Endeavor agents. Okay. 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 Mark, you're not going to be on the board of the new company.
0: And there it is.
1: And neither was P- uh, Peter Groslight, who was the head of the music department.
0: So no representative from the unscripted or music department were going to be on that board. The two most profitable
1: departments were going to be on the new board.
0: And, and let's be honest. The departments that probably were the most attractive from Endeavor in the first place mm-hmm. And why they wanted the merger. Correct. Those were two giant assets. Correct. And the two faces of those departments were not going to be on the board. Correct. So the issue was not with Endeavor. The issue was politics on the William Morris side. Correct. And you felt betrayed at that point? Or disappointed?
1: All those things. Undervalued? Betrayed, disappointed. Yeah, all that stuff. Like, what the
0: hell? How'd you respond?
1: I... I,
0: Was there any furniture moving? I said...
1: No, I I picked up the phone <laughs> yeah. and I called Rick Rosen and I said, Rick, I just want to tell you I'm not coming over. Wow. Why? Because I'm not am not going to be on the board. And that's when everything went started going in motion that ultimately put Peter Grosslight and me on the board so of did- the new co.
0: Because the Endeavor side lobbied and said, hey, guys, we don't want to go through this and then lose Mark. So let's do the right thing and put him on the freaking board. And I will
1: give a lot of credit to my former colleague, John Fogelman. Wow. Because John Fogelman, who was part of the seven, was going to be on the new co and said, this is crazy. And he went to the the Endeavor guys. And I think he did a lot of. He, he was a lot of behind the scenes of making this happen. And of course, as it ended up, neither Jim Wyatt nor Irv Weintraub were on the board of the new co.
0: So wait, it started as five and four. Yeah. And then they add you and, and the music department head.
1: Yeah, but they had to take two people out. They did.
0: Studios. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. So it didn't yeah. become seven and four. No, no,
1: it stayed five.
0: So Jim was then removed? Correct. So that's how the Game of Thrones shit went down. That is what sparked it. Correct. I never wrapped by just, just being on the outside and reading everything and knowing what played out shortly after that merger Correct. and everybody later saying it was a reverse takeover on the Endeavor side. That was, you know, just what people said when R gained control of it yeah. ultimately. I always wondered, having met Jim and known Jim, and Jim being one of the nicest people to me, just as a lowly assistant at the time, I didn't understand how that happened. He took himself off the board. No. How did that get how does that get decided?
1: It was decided by pre
0: pre pre closing the deal. No, the deal was closed.
1: So he didn't
0: didn't ensure that in the closing of the deal that he would be assured a part of the board.
1: I can't tell you all the machinations and all the legal things that went on with his attorneys and whatever. But just to let you know that that he was removed from that situation, as was her Weintraub.
0: Wow. How's your relationship with Jim White these days? Um, I haven't seen him. I've seen him a
1: couple times out in public
0: and very pleasant. So you, that was Oh nine. You retired two years ago into 15. So you went another six years, correct? Why was it time to, to retire? Why was it time to step away? I
1: probably, I had always thought that, that um, probably 2013 was going to be when I would retire. Mm. And because of certain contractual obligations, I, I, stayed two extra years. Um, The business had changed so much. And here's the main thing. And I said this, I think, in a Hollywood Reporter interview. I was really, really lucky because I... My whole business was being on the periphery, pushing the envelope and not doing what anyone else did. I wasn't selling actors or sitcoms and being the fifth guy out there. Everything I did was... New,
0: yeah, big brother,
1: and it was exciting. And you get yeah. spoiled, yeah. And it came to a place in the non scripted business. Non scripted business is not, it, 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 not in, it wasn't in the best place in 2015. Maybe it's a little bit better now. I don't know. You think I don't know. I'm gonna get there. I'm okay, gonna get, we'll there get there in a there. sec, yeah. Um, but but I couldn't sell new great ideas anymore, right. I'd sit in a room and I would make references to things and it would go over people's heads. And <laughs> I just and I became embarrassed almost sitting and saying I'm sitting here pitching to these people, and I have this body of work and I wasn't arrogant about it. It was just a matter of fact. And I said, you know what, I can't do it anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I okay. I, can't do it anymore. I had a I had a breakfast with a um, uh, uh, a person that I really admire who recently left a very high ranking job at a cable network. And they were talking about what they want to do next. And they were talking to producers for their thoughts on what it's like on on the selling side. And I said, you will not be able to go through the notes process. Having ran a department and been the, the, the person with the green light power at a cable network for many, many, many years with all that power to now be on the selling side and be on notes calls with the director of development who is half your age. Who learned everything while they were sitting on a desk and have never worked a day in their life in production? And not everybody's like that.
1: And but, doesn't know the history of our business. Yeah,
0: but not everyone's like that. There, there are good ones out there. I'm not saying sure. every cable network and every director of development is that. But to go from being high ranking like that on the network side to to then being the producer and having to just deal with the notes and be on the receiving side of the notes from someone that you know would have been your junior, you know, uh, just a few months prior. Uh, I was like, it's impossible. You'll never be able to stomach it. You know, a big part of being a producer is learning how to, you know, just eat shit and be t- being told no. That's a big part of being a producer these days. I can understand that someone like you who is on the Mount Rushmore of this business uh, and can honestly say you were the most successful at what you do. I mean, in the history of agents in the unscripted business, I know you can't say it. But you are the Wayne Gretzky, man. I mean, if, if you look at all the credits, all the shows, you know, the only shows missing from that that changed the business are, like, Loser, Bachelor, and, like, Idol. Like, those are, like, the only other shows you can throw in there that I didn't name, which means that any other agent today – now, now, now I'm, I was involved with
1: Loser,
0: you know. Oh, you're – wait, wait, wait. Wait, lift up the mic. I
1: was involved with Loser. Okay, so you add Loser yeah, to this. Yeah, I represented three balls.
0: So the only major shows you didn't rep were, like, Bachelor, Survivor. You did Survivor too? No. No okay. Survivor. Bachelor Survivor and no Idol. Idol. And Idol.
1: But I will tell you a great story. I Were we actually... involved in The Voice? No. Okay. But I those did... are only four.
0: Mark, those are only four you didn't do. And I sold a show
1: with, um, with uh, Tom Foreman. Uh, and I, again, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm forgetting the other gentleman's name. To the WB. Okay. Beef with Matt Casella, who was the guy who cast the 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 Bachelor, no, cast the Mickey Mouse Club in the '90s, and found Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and and Ryan Justin uh,
0: Timberlake. Just yeah, Yeah. we sold a show
1: to the WB that was American Idol before American Idol came on the air. Oh, was
0: it? And it aired right. Was it pop stars? No,
1: that was that's another one I sold. Yeah, that was Stone Stanley. No, this is before that.
0: Wow. It's
1: what got Tom Foreman out of the news business in CBS to L.A. Unbelievable. And it was American Idol.
0: But what I'm saying is
1: – Anyway, no, I didn't you,
0: sell the but, American Idol. But I could Idol. Say, a guy of a guy, that pedigree though, a guy of your pedigree and, and history in the business, having sold some of the biggest shows, name brand shows, now years later having to sit in those pitch meetings with the director and VP of development and having them tell you why they don't get it. Yeah, tough. Of course it's going to wear on you after yeah, a while. And you're yeah. like, I'm going to step out. I'm, I'm good. Step out. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to the gym in yeah. Venice. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. Let me You're let me right, give you some sure. some quick hitters here. Who was your best assistant ever? Not who became the best agent. Who was the best at being an assistant? Oh, in assistant I duties. I not say that here. I heard da- I heard David Sherman made the best protein shake.
1: He did make the best protein. Okay, shake. Okay, that's confirmed. Yes, that's confirmed. I
0: heard Lee White made the worst protein shakes, and he told me that was actually on purpose because he hated making you shakes. <laughs>
1: I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that.
0: Uh, okay, real quick. Best top three pitchers in the room. Pitchers, salesmen. Yeah. That you've been that you've been in a room with
1: John Demall, number one. Number
0: one.
1: Ron Ziskin.
0: Remind me, Ron Ziskin.
1: Uh, four Point American uh, American Gladiators. Okay. Okay.
0: Really? He was a showman in the room.
1: Great. Incredible salesman. Wow. There's – I can't limit it to three because I I always thought that – I'm going to leave it at that.
0: What about Burnett? Were you ever in the room with Burnett?
1: Never represented Burnett, but – I mean, he's a great salesman, but –
0: I hear Foreman's all-time. Foreman.
1: That's another great one. Yes. Foreman's top three. Okay. Okay. There's, I have to say, Foreman's tied with a few other people, a few other of my clients. I I don't want to leave I don't want to leave somebody out because okay. it's a tough question. It's a tough question, but clearly number one is John Demall.
0: What was it about John Demall? Passion. Passion. You know what I realized recently? That word gets thrown around a lot, right? And in your early days of pitching, when you're still kind of nervous, you know, you're you're just starting out, being the guy leading the room as the development guy or whatever. You think, as long as I'm passionate, as long as I'm passionate, I need energy, I need energy. And then what I came to realize recently, like when I watch a guy like David Eilenberg, who I really respect, in the room, David's not Mr. Energy Guy, but people love him. And what I realized is it's not necessarily passion. I think it's sincerity. I think in this business, you have so many people that have all the passion, but they're clearly selling you like a shoddy format or a show that they have no idea how to make. And I think in this day and age where everyone lives on fear, I think it's it's not really the razzle-dazzle as much anymore as you That's need, a to, point, need to have sincerity.
1: And a, and a solid idea.
0: Right. Right.
1: John DeMall had passion about a solid idea.
0: Yeah. Uh, worst pitch meeting.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, uh, it was at... I'm not going to say the producer By the way,
0: was. I love that you know it offhand that quickly.
1: Because it, it was horrible.
0: Worst pitch bidding please. It
1: was to my dear friend, Mike Darnell. Oh, geez. So so the, 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 the fallout damage wasn't bad because he understood. But I had a client who was pitching a game show, and it went so bad. He turned to me and says, Mark, would you just pitch the show? <gasps> yeah. And one of my former colleagues was in the room with me, so I can I, I have proof of that.
0: Was this a producer I would know by name? Is his name on the door?
1: His name would be on the door of his company. Yes.
0: interesting Wow. Interesting.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And what was the, what was the conversation? And this
1: was later in the in the in the producer's career, um, but it was, it was really it was it was, it was rough. Was you know? it
0: their first meeting with Darnell? Did Darnell psych him out?
1: No, no. I, well, maybe, maybe, maybe Darnell psyched him out. Right. Part of it, but he just lost it in the room. He just said, "Mark, Mark, would you just pitch the show, please?"
0: And was that out of character for that producer? Yes. Afterwards, yes. what do you do there? Do you just put your arm around him and say, "We'll, we'll get him next time," or?
1: Yeah, you know, I'd say, "Listen, that was, thank goodness it was Mike Darnell because Mike Darnell was." Was, is a decent human being you know it could have been some other buyers that that's true would have raped you over the coals but that's that's it, true thank god it was mike
0: here's a mike mike may kill you in the room but he's gonna kill you with a smile
1: without a doubt right yeah 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 who
0: do you least miss pitching
1: oh no i'm not good at <laughs> on the buyer's side i can't say <laughs> i cannot say that really
0: you're out you're free
1: no i don't want to no okay. i don't want to do that to anybody okay
0: that's yeah, fair that's fair that's why that's why you're anybody. a gentleman all uh, right. Lastly, state of the business now. So you found an opening with first run syndication and you were there at the boom of everything, man. I mean, game shows were riding high when you started and, uh, the boom of the reality business and the UK invasion of formats. You were there for all that. And that was at a time where producers and global companies could actually own like legitimately own and say they own the show. Now, nobody owns anything, right? And you're lucky now if you can get distribution, even as a major distributor, like all three. We're sitting in the all three offices now, uh, and we have to fight for those rights like everybody else. The budgets get smaller, but yet overhead goes up. People having to run their own business still goes up. Rent, offices, space, edit bays, all that goes up. And we're right now, right now, and I don't know how much you're talking to people. I don't know how disconnected you are. You know, you're two years into retirement. But you've got the cable networks folding before our eyes. You've got production companies, people I know, uh, folding companies. Do you think there's any last opportunity now for producers or sellers to gain any advantage or find a lane of opportunity? Because even with the rise of digital, people say, oh, there's all these digital platforms. That's fine. That means there's a few more doors to knock on, but the deals aren't any better. Is there any... Or is, or is this it, Mark? Is this just the new normal? No.
1: Well, I th- I think... This is going to sound very cliche.
0: Yeah.
1: But I really... That old statement, content is king. Yeah. Okay. I still believe that a great project that is more than just... Let, let's say we're just talking television. It is, it's more than just a television show. It is a business. Right. That has... Tentacles, that it's a business, that if you can find somebody with a vision to take a chance who's not scared to death with something new, different as a business, I still believe very strongly that there is a place out there to make a big score. Right. I, I,
0: I... But even the score can't be nearly as big as it once was. Depends. Like, if, like if it you depends. It sold... depends on how you
1: do it, Jimmy.
0: Well, if you sold it... Biggest Loser today, yeah, you would not. Re- you would not keep the merchandising rights that Ben had. You would not keep the DVD rights, the home workout video rights that Ben had. You may or may not keep the distribution or have as healthy a back end on the distribution that you know Reveille had. Uh, the the checking uh, the budget would be smaller in production to begin with, probably. Uh, so less for three ball to to grow their production entity. You could sell the same exact idea with all the same business aspects. And Biggest Loser is one of the best businesses of a show's show ever created. But it still wouldn't be the same deal because you but, wouldn't have the same rights.
1: But you're talking about selling something to a, a broadcast network. Right. I'm not necessarily thinking about selling something to a broadcast network. So that's what I'm getting time. at. Right,
0: right. That model right now has been squeezed.
1: It's been – and even like a Fremantle. I mean one of the most gratifying things for me in the last year I agented was to be able to sell for Fremantle Celebrity Family Feud and to tell the truth. Two iconic so formats. So great.
0: You must have loved that.
1: I loved it because they are f- f- my favorite – among my favorite shows. And Fremantle obviously because they are who they are and those are iconic formats, able to control a lot of those rights. Right. But not everybody has those libraries, okay? Yeah. But – but but I believe there are ways to deal with end users today, whether it's broadcast stations or broadcast stations that have digital platforms attached to them, to sell projects and new businesses and to be able to have a very um, more than fair participation. Mm. The traditional way of doing things, yeah, yeah. Now is the, you're right. The, the, this is the new normal, which means that you got to find. New thing, just like I did with cable or syndication. Right. When everybody was going to network prime time, everybody wanted to do network prime time. Right. Syndication cable was so unsexy. Right. I didn't care whether it was unsexy. I I, I love the marketplace, yeah. And I knew I could make a, a well, lot of
0: money. Well, let me. So you got to do that again. Let me ask you this because I've I've been thinking about this a lot. Obviously, because I'm still you know early on to a, a new company being launched and trying to find the lane. And it seems like. The reality business is pretty much built. And, and, and look at all the major players Endemol, Fremantle, all three, all of us shine. Big, big global conglomerates with a lot of money, ITV, with a lot of money to spend on launching new companies or investing in new production companies, 50 edit bays in the building, the whole thing. And yet the whole reality business is built around not spending your own money on production. And then you become a servant of the networks. And you have to, you know take it in the rear on their prolonged post schedule and the notes and the auditing and the crappy deals because they're paying for a hundred percent of the show. Right. And sometimes you might step up and might kick in like 20, 25% of the deficit to retain on a, on a cable show. But if you and your global salesman know that we are guaranteed on this cable show, we're guaranteed to make $250,000 an episode globally on a cop show. Or on a House Hunters type show. We know what these sell for. Why wouldn't you just finance them and license them more often if you're a major global conglomerate like that to I, feed your international distribution?
1: I, I completely agree. And no
0: one's really doing that.
1: No. And, and take a lesser license fee from the buyer. Right. And do uh, – absolutely. If you
0: know you're going to make – it's the indie financing model for film.
1: Look, exactly. If
0: you know what you're going to make internationally and you know you're going to make 250 and you know you can make that format for 125 Right. Why not just finance it yourself, buy the time on the network if right, you have to right. for 50000 or whatever it is, throw it into the, the bucket, and you don't have to deal with the notes. You own 100% of the show You now. just answered
1: your own question.
0: But no one's doing a, it. I mean, the, the, the,
1: the cable networks have allowed producers to do that. Yeah. It's just that I think producers, most of them are extremely risk aversive. Right. But I'm not talking about selling things through traditional – to, to, through traditional platforms
0: outlets yeah
1: outlets i 'm talking about new businesses that are sold uh, new new projects that are sold through a combination of linear and digital. And it's the kind of shows, yeah. so that there is a true business there. I, I know a lot of this, sound, uh, uh, this.
0: Are you speaking in code because you're secretly working on this? Well, I am to... working
1: on some things okay. like this. Absolutely, got because it. I if I, I said to myself when I leave this, when I leave the traditional business after 34 years, I can't. Do, I I got to do something new and big and important and groundbreaking because that's all I'm used to doing. Right. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Right. You know.
0: So this isn't the last to market in TV hope not this was just the last of mark at wme correct i love it correct i love it let's leave them hanging there okay thanks for doing That's this cool. man jimmy thanks i man. appreciate it, it Man, it was great. a lot of fun was it yeah. okay
1: yes yeah,
0: okay good thanks man appreciate it